Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, December 12, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Jim Hogan, who is running for the 126th district in the state of Missouri. Now, currently, the 126th district encompasses the counties of Bates and Vernon on the west side of the state, just south of Kansas City and right up against the border with Kansas. Now, I say currently because the district lines may change depending on the redrawing of political boundaries, which should be completed by this coming February. This is Jim's third attempt for this seat. He ran in 2018 and in 2019, and we hope that this year the third time is a charm. Jim is a Democrat. The seat has been held consistently by Republicans for quite some time. The last time a Democratic presidential candidate was supported within Jim's area was when Bill Clinton won back in 1996. So it's an uphill battle for any so-called blue dot in a sea of red, but that doesn't discourage Jim from running. Now, Jim's platform consists of several planks. These planks include Support for farmers, including resistance to concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, more commonly known as factory farms. Support for teachers and education. Ending of corruption within the state's capital, Jefferson City. Building an economy for everyone, including the expansion of Medicaid, funding of broadband access, and the raising of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Protection of communities while also protecting the Second Amendment. And finally, improvement of workers' rights. Now, just for historical context, the counties of Bates and Vernon are fairly sparsely populated. They have been agricultural areas well back to when the Osage Native Americans originally populated that land. Bates County itself has the distinction of being the site of the first Civil War battle fought by African Americans, primarily ex-slaves that had volunteered with a Kansas regiment. This was known as the Battle of Island Mound. Now, technically, at the time of this confrontation, the African-American volunteers were not officially part of the Union Army, but shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation, they were officially mustered into the Union Army in January 1863. Uh, Interesting bit of history for you. The total population of both these counties is currently around 37,000 people and unfortunately has been slowly dropping since their peak at around the turn of the last century. So with all that history in mind, uh, Jim, welcome to Democracy on the Move, and thank you for joining us today. I am certainly glad to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, We're hoping that uh, we can attempt to make a difference uh, in our region, in our area. Well, and and here you are. I mean, this is is third time a charm, we hope. As I mentioned before, you've ran twice already, and um, I guess, you know, you just can't keep a good man down. so it's been a rough couple of election cycles for you in the past. So, I mean, what keeps you going? What makes you get up in the morning and say, I'm ready for another run? Well, I keep seeing things happening uh, to the people of Missouri from Jefferson City that just upset me. I, I see that we are being left out of the process in a lot of cases, and we need people in Jefferson City with a little common sense to tell them, come on, uh, help the people, not yourselves. Uh, This time the incumbent is termed out. So this should give me at least a little better opportunity or equal footing uh, to get 
the voters to look at me and say, maybe this is the guy we need. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so let's talk about some of the items on your on your plank here. I'd like to start off with CAFOs. That's the Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. Uh, a lot of people know them as factory farms. Now, whether we like it or not, CAFOs are slowly becoming a fact of life in Missouri. They've become a fact of life in several states around Missouri, especially in Iowa. Now, to date, there are more than 500 CAFOs operating in Missouri, I understand, 18 of which are considered Class 1A and that is the largest de designation. And this type of designation allows more than 17,500 swine over 55 pounds or 70,000 swine under 50 pounds or some combination thereof. That's a lot of hogs. So now it, along with that, there's been some major spills of raw sewage from these uh, CAFOs over the recent years one of which earlier this year spilled an estimated 350,000 gallons of raw hog manure and wastewater, resulting in the pollution of uh, 12 to 15 miles of nearby creeks and tributaries. And uh, this information is courtesy of the Missouri Independent, by the way. Now, to top things off, the CAFO industry in Missouri is lobbying heavily to, of all things, reduce the regulations. And already we've seen laws passed in Missouri legislature that forbids local county health departments from, in, from instituting regulations that are more stringent than those that are set by the legislature itself. And in other words, local control is being ripped away from local communities. And what stings even more is that Smithfield, the largest, field, the, the largest CAFO operator in Missouri, is a foreign-owned corporation. Now, so essentially, we're allowing foreign corporations to pollute our streams and lakes, poison our groundwater, and put a foul stench in the air that carries for miles. And I think the most devastating part about this is that these CAFOs are putting our local ranchers, the pride of Missouri, putting them out of business. So given this background, Jim, uh, what sort of fixes would you propose upon arriving at the state legislature? Well, there are several things that have to be done to, to combat this. First of all, we have to, in my opinion, get rid of Senate Bill 391. Let local control by the counties determine what their health codes are and what their health issues are, particularly uh, in relationship to the CAFOs. Let the local counties deal with that part of it and, and set up their own uh, bills if they need to and want to. Secondly, we need more oversight over the CAFOs in the third in in the next place because a couple of years ago the government or the governor cut money for oversight of the CAFOs and for inspectors to inspect them. Hmm. So we have less inspectors doing more work and they can't get around to all of them. And that's where these types of things happen, like the one that did recently. Mm -hmm. because there's no oversight on them to tell how much manure is actually being processed. Lastly, or in addition, CAFOs have now become a monopoly. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, there are so many of them in Missouri and across the nation that they are cutting small farmers out of business, making it impossible for them to compete. And they're monopolizing the industry since basically Smithfield is the big one. Mm -hmm. uh, they are the monopoly in themselves, which needs to be looked at very seriously. 
and to see if we can break down that monopoly, uh, regardless of whether it's foreign owned or not, which is another part of it, because the foreign ownership doesn't care what they do to our lands and streams. They have no care. All they want to do is make the production, earn the money, and the farms and lands and streams of Missouri, they don't care about those. Right. So those are some of the things we have to look at extremely seriously. Yeah. You know, what surprised me is I looked into this some time ago, so I'm going to go off the top of my head with these numbers, but I think it was the CDC had at one point estimated the amount of just raw sewage that these CAFOs produce. It's somewhere on the order of three to 20 times. I know it's a fairly large range, but three to 20 times that that human beings produce. Right. And so when we, you know, it gets kind of kind of uh, in detail here, but, you know, when you flush your toilet, it actually goes to a sewage processing plant where there are strict regulations as to how that sewage is handled. And and eventually it does get uh, released from the plant, but only after it's been thoroughly cleaned and ready to be released. Uh, There is no such regulations like this on any of these CAFOs. So we're basically producing a whole lot of, pardon the expression, poop and not really processing it at all. Right. Uh, A few years back, there was a movement to to make them have a containment facility and a processing facility to get that waste broken down. Mm -hmm. But that all went by the wayside. So again, uh, as you were saying, there is nothing on them to contain it, to break it down. They can just let it flow. Yeah. And to, for us living in these areas, what's going to become of our lands and our streams and the fish and, and everything, that the eco, whole ecological system of our streams and rivers as all that manure goes downstream? Yeah. Not to mention the value of your property, too, because even if you live um, far enough away from a CAFO, maybe upstream from them or something, you're still going to get that that wafting air coming toward you uh, yes. in a big cloud. And yes. that's, uh, that's going to reduce, uh, you know, if I were looking at a home and I, I smell something like that, I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm not going to buy this home. So I can imagine right. property values go right. down. Yeah. It was, it was bad enough on my father's farm with a few hogs he had when I was growing up. Uh, the smell was there. Yeah. Uh, imagine when you take thousands of them, uh, what that's going to be like, you're right. The property values around that area are going to decrease because nobody's going to buy the property. Yeah. So the, the the cure there then is to go into the Missouri legislature and start fighting. Um, you're going to need some friends though, right? Because the uh, I actually had a conversation with Erica Hoffman. She ran for I believe it was the 96th district in Missouri, and this was I'm going back over a year ago now. I had just a casual conversation with her. Uh, she ran. She didn't. She didn't win though. Now she's she's moved out of the area. But um, she told me that she was she was lobbying for the Sierra Club against the Senate Bill 391 that that you mentioned. This I believe was passed in in uh, 2019, and um, mm-hmm. she had she said that uh, she literally in the lobby with a whole bunch of lobbyists from these CAFOs, and she was just completely overwhelmed by them and. It went in for a vote, and it was—I uh, mean, it was just a very strong vote uh, from the other side of the aisle that that voted for this thing. So, I mean, if you get into the Missouri legislature, you're probably going to face some of the same people there, right? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure their lobbyists are strong. Mm -hmm. Their lobbyists are going to be strong. My point is any legislate, legislator from any rural district, particularly those with the CAFOs, should be fighting this as hard as they can, not necessarily to get rid of the CAFO, but to protect the land around them mm -hmm. and protect their farmland in their districts and protect their people. I, I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. If you live in one of those areas, you should be willing to fight to protect the people living in your district. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to have to have is a coalition uh, of people from rural areas like myself to do anything to fight uh, the lobbyists. Yeah. Aren't there some regulations in Missouri also in terms of who can own foreign? Uh, what? what it, it, let me start over again. Aren't there regulations in Missouri regarding foreign ownership of land in Missouri? Yes. Uh, 1895 bill passed in Missouri was zero. Foreign ownership went to zero percent of the popular country or mm -hmm. world. Uh, a few years ago, they upped that to one percent. And that still figures to be quite a few hundred thousand acres, yeah. which brought which allowed, I guess you could say, the Chinese company to take over when Smithfield wanted to sell out. Mm -hmm. Instead of Smithfield uh, having to sell to someone either from Missouri or at the very least uh, a company from the United States. Wow. So that that bill itself allowed that to kind of take place. Um, is there I any... also know that there's go ahead. I was going to say, is there any hope of, of reversing that bill at all? Uh, at this point, I would say not. It would take the same group of people, a coalition of the same rural legislators uh, to make it hard enough um, mm -hmm. to stop those, to, to stop or subvert or, or reject that bill. Okay. Well, the big thing right now is let's go after SB 391. And I think that's the bill that, uh, at least the one that's the one that stands out in my mind as being the bill that allows, right. uh, that I should say, uh, renders toothless the county health departments in regulating these CAFOs. It basically says you can pass regulations, but they can't be any more strict than what the Missouri legislature has passed. So, um, yeah, so that's a, that was SB 391. Right. And, yeah. and that could be totally different in another county than what we're talking about in a county that actually has a CAFO in it, uh, where they need more regulation, they they need more health control. And, you know, again, uh, since the governor cut the money for inspectors, we need more inspectors on the line to help out to control it as well. Sure. So those are the two things that can be done is maybe overturning 391 and then getting more money for inspections and oversight to make yeah. sure that they're running properly, even if we can't do anything about the monopoly that they have set up. Yeah. Well, it's, <clears throat> I think it's also, it's interesting to me as you're talking here, I'm thinking about this and saying, and thinking, you know, if you do overturn 391, that would then allow the local county, the people within the local county to get involved and maybe help subsidize the 
the, the inspections, you know, to, to help subsidize the cost of inspections, um, something like that. Anyway, I just thought of that off the top of my head. I don't know if that's practical or not, but. Uh, I, I think the, the, the oversight for inspections is still got have to, would have to come from the state level, but you know, if, if we can at least get SB 391 overturned, then the counties could start to complain that mm-hmm. they don't have enough oversight that they could start to make a case for we need uh, more money for inspectors and for oversight. And, you know, that's an eventuality, but it may actually work in reverse so mm-hmm. that we can get more money that way for them to get inspectors hired yeah. and get them out on the job. Well, that sounds like a great idea. I'm, I'm, um, I'm all, I'm all for that. Now, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I'm kind of a city dweller myself. I sit here in the suburbs around the St. Louis area, but um, I really feel for Missouri, and I really feel for the the rural areas here. And when, and whenever I see something like this happening, where local control is ripped away by uh, what I would consider highly centralized control, uh, it makes me wonder. Okay, it happened here in CAFOs, maybe it's going to happen somewhere else soon. So we better put a stop to this right now. It's in everybody's best interest, really. Well, and there has already been talk, not just of a a hog farm, hog production facility, but there was a a serious attempt to put a cattle facility much like it just a little ways west of Kansas City two years ago. And it did come to a vote of the people, thank goodness, and they turned it down. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be the same type of facility that we now have with the hog CAFOs. Oh, wow. Yeah, it branches into beef so, after a while. Yeah. And then and then, if that happens, what happens to our beef farmers? Yeah, yeah. Same thing that's happened to our hog farmers. So uh, I just, it's a beware situation. They've already taken care of turkeys, chicken, and hogs. Uh, what's next? Yeah. So I asked the beef farmers, be on the lookout. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it makes sense. You're next, right? They, they've got you in their sights. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So yep. Um, let's move on to a different topic here. I want to talk about education. You uh, you are a teacher. What, do you have a specific subject that you teach? <laughs> uh, I started out 40 plus years ago as an industrial arts teacher. Hmm. Um, I woodworking, metalworking, drafting, engineering. Uh, I also have an English degree. Um, the last few years, however, I have changed over to STEM education, which is engineering. And I teach a lot of, uh, high school, middle school and high school engineering classes. Oh, nice. Well, that's good. It's a hands-on thing. And I like that. And I still say we need more people, young people going into the hands-on trades um, because electricians and plumbers and uh, welders and all of those construction people, uh, they need help and they can't get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so you're being a teacher in Missouri, and I'm just going to take it for granted that it forces you to kind of live on a fairly challenging set of paychecks, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Challenging is a good word. I didn't mean it to be um, funny, but I mean, <laughs> no, that's that's good. It's it's uh, well, you, you have to either look at look at it and laugh or cry, you know. So you, you get used to 
you get used to a very limited budget uh, to deal with things. Again, I've been at it a long time. My pay is now fairly decent, but my pay is now where starting pay for a lot of other jobs would be mm -hmm. uh, if I wasn't in education. So that it hurts to think yeah. that educators are professionals and Missouri is 46th in the nation in teacher pay and just bumped up a little bit to, I think, 47th or 8th in starting teacher pay. Hmm. Um, so why are we considering people professionals and paying them at the rate that we do? Uh, base teacher pay has to be raised up. We're still at like 22.5 yeah. for starting or 25,000. For starting teachers, that's wow. that's ridiculous. That's not even fifteen dollars um, an hour minimum wage. When you think about it, right? Mm. Exactly, exactly. With four or five years of college education, plus needing to go back and get a master's degree after that. Yeah. Um, it it's it's unheard of to be a professional and make that kind of money. Um, well, what what do you think the problem is though? Like, I mean, it, it's is it. Is it school funding is is cutting uh, teachers' salaries like this? What what is the sure. primary problem? Sure, sure. School funding. Uh, mm -hmm. Most uh, our our school funding our funding comes from local taxes, of course, and and then from the state's funding budget for education. And the biggest part of that problem is in '02, Governor Holden uh, sent a bipartisan committee out to find out what it would take uh, for a teacher for starting pay or per kid, per child in Missouri, what should the budget be? Mm -hmm. And the committee came back with per child, the budget for education should be $7,111. Our legislature has always said, oh, we're fully funded, but have never gotten over 6,300, hardly over $6,300 a year. Wow. So we are, we have been underfunded since 02 and we're not doing anything they're very happy with the formula they have mm -hmm. to keep it lower than what it should be for our schools to operate properly uh, and to give teachers the pay raises that they need well what do you suppose so, it is is it just um is it just an um, under appreciation of what teachers do or is there some other some other um well force it i think pleasure. there's two or three things i think there's two or three things in play one th they look at the total budget and put education somewhere below a lot of the other things even though it is a huge part of the budget yeah. I, I understand that but they don't see it as important enough to add monies to it mm -hmm. uh another thing has been the very recent attempt at taking monies from our schools uh, to give them to private schools, charter schools, homeschooling. Uh, I mm. really am squeamish about their attempt and it will happen again. It's already been said that a bill will be brought up again to continue uh, to move monies from the general school funding budget mm -hmm. to these other types of schools uh, that should be private, that should be paid for by the user and not through our local tax money, yeah. which should go to the public schools. 
So that's a big part of what I think they're just holding off doing anything, saying, look, the public schools are now not doing anything for your children. Well, if you don't have the money to operate, uh, what are you going to do? And then they're going to say, but we can put it in these other schools and they'll do a much better job of educating your child. And all of the uh, research that's been done has said it's false. It's exactly the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I've had previous conversations with a number of people on this podcast here. Um, Most recently was um, Heather Fleming from organization known as MOEEP. I think it's Missouri Equity Education Partnership. And uh, she Mm -hmm. had a very interesting observation. She said, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but she said something to the order of, of, if you start funding private schools with public money, um, okay, so you take that $6,300 that you cited earlier and you say, okay, now each child gets that $6,300 for for private school. Well, private schools cost a lot more than $6,300 per pupil. You know, you're talking at least twice that much. So really what this ends up happening is that the people who are who can't afford a private school, they can't afford it even if it's funded, even if it's subsidized to $6,300 because you're talking like $12,000, $15,000 per year per student. So it really just ends, ends up right. being kind of a tax break for the people who can't afford it and doesn't help yes. the people who can't afford it, not one bit. It, it actually hurts them even more yeah. because they've yeah. taken their money away from the public school where their children will still have to go. Right. And which will provide less education uh, for the children going there then. But you're exactly right. Uh, it only helps those on the positive financial side that can already allow their children to go. It's just a boon to the private and charter schools. Yeah. Well, it's also a boon to people who want to homeschool their kids. Uh, who knows what, how, what yep. kind of a job they're going to do homeschooling their kids. Uh, you know, maybe sitting in front of the TV and playing video games is their idea of education, and they pick up sixty three hundred bucks per student. You know, it's right. That's kind of exactly. cynical, but but uh, that's that's also a possibility. It is, but I've always worried about a student uh, transfer or taking their high school equivalency test um, to get a degree after they've been homeschooled. How how well do they do on those tests? Yeah, uh, are they truly are they truly prepared to either go on to college or go into the world of work? And many times I just doubt that that's possible. Well, they, they don't get the social interaction part of it either. I mean, that's the no. sad thing about no. it. It, it. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I went to high school and college. I enjoyed every minute of both because it was it was not only a learning experience, but you get that social interaction and you learn a lot by you know dealing with people and joining different clubs and doing different things with different people. And a lot, a lot of people are into sports. I'm kind of a nerd. So I was, you know, into photography and, you know, the yearbook staff and things like that. But everybody has these things in, in high school and college that um, teaches them a lot that's not right, that's not in the textbook, right? It's other stuff. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I've had students come in over the years from, from homeschool that it, it takes them a long time to fit in uh, simply because they're not used to the social interaction Mm -hmm. with 15 or 20 other kids in their classroom or 30 or whatever. And sometimes they truly get lost in the shuffle because of it. Yeah. And that's too bad for them. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, that they are missing a part that you can't test for on the GED exam, right? So that's right. I want to say somewhat related to this because I, I listened to your interview on the Heartland Pod, which was uh, I listened to it earlier this week. I think it came out uh, just before Thanksgiving, if I'm not mistaken. And you guys dis- discussed this brouhaha over critical race theory. And I have to say that, you know, I'm not going to ask you whether CRT is being taught in Missouri schools, because I know they aren't. Maybe the exception of maybe law school or something like that. But we all know the answer is no, it's not being taught. But we also know that the concept of CRT has been bent like a pretzel to look like a boogeyman. And it's been mischaracterized, to put it lightly, to as being a course in everything from Marxism to communism to racism. And... It turns out that the man who bent this pretzel is a guy by the, by the name of Christopher Rufo, who is an American conservative activist, and his distortion of the term, he admitted it was intentional. In fact, he's quoted as saying, I am quite intentionally redefining what critical race theory means in the public mind, expanding it as a catch-all for the new racial orthodoxy. People won't read Derek Bell, the, the creator of critical race theory, but when, they, when their kids are labeled as an oppressor in first grade, that's now becoming CRT. And he goes on to say that the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. So my question is this. I mean, given that the contemporary interpretation of critical race theory is, I'm going to, lack a better term, a bastardization of the original intent, uh, why would right. why do you suppose it's been so successful at penetrating school board meetings? And, and what do you think is the ultimate goal of all this distortion, in your opinion? Okay, here's my opinion, and it's my opinion only. Um, it, 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 it has become a weapon for the ultra-conservatives to say, we are against critical race theory. Therefore, those that are not with us must be for it or mm-hmm. in favor of it. Mm-hmm. And it has become an issue that should not even have been an issue because we who are not with them should have stood up and said, no, we don't follow it either. Yeah. It's a hoax. Yeah. It's a theory only. But we have failed in stepping up to the plate and saying, it's not, it won't be. Look at the fact that it's a hoax. Look at the fact that it's it's unfactual. And it let it go because it's not, or it should never have become an issue because nobody's for it. Yeah. And I, we, we, some of us have dropped the ball. Uh, we should have jumped right on it as soon as, as soon as it came up, the huh? ultras did. Yeah. yeah. And said, no, you're, you're against it. So are we, yeah. it won't work. Yeah. Well, I think there was, there was the, uh, if, if I were to sort of, you know, replay the scene in my mind, it was one of those things that just came out of nowhere. Right. I mean, Critical race theory yeah. itself is is a course developed by Dr. Derek Bell at Harvard University back in the late 1970s for completely different reasons mm-hmm. than what it's being portrayed as these days. 
And so right. I, I don't really blame people, and I'll just put a label, on it, a label on it. I don't blame the Democrats for being caught off guard by this because, wham, I mean, this thing is just like a two-by-four yeah. flying out of the blue sky. Just hit him right in the head, and like, what are you going to do? It, it wasn't there just a few months ago, and all, all of a sudden, it's one of the main talk, talking points. Yeah, yeah. So I need to get it out there that I'm against it. So, <laughs> so there. <laughs> well, yeah. here's, here's one of yeah. the things that, uh, you, you, you know who Jess Piper is. She's running for the uh, first district in Missouri, um, just to the north, of, mm-hmm. to your north. Um, one of her theories is, and I, I wouldn't say it's theory, I think she actually believes this, and I believe it too, that it is a tool that's being used to help defund public schools, right? Because if you can tag mm-hmm. public schools as saying, well, these people yep. are bad, they're teaching yep. critical race theory, teaching kids to hate each other and teaching kids uh, to hate America, um, then the next knee-jerk reaction from most people, which you can't blame them if they believe all this stuff, the next knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, let's defund their public schools and send everybody to charter schools or private schools or something. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with you. I think that's working, excuse me, that's working into their uh philosophy of dropping funding from sc- for schools and raising it for the other schools and this thing has just become a another part another piece in that puzzle mm-hmm. uh, another way for for it to happen um as long as they're yelling schools are teaching it unfortunately people are going to listen even though mm-hmm. it just isn't happening yeah yeah, but I, and that's why I keep yelling. No, it isn't. It isn't gonna. It's not being taught in my school. Uh, it's not being taught in Missouri, uh, and it's not going to be taught in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Well, to quote uh, another one of our previous guests, Damon Davis, uh, in politics, perception is reality, <laughs> and so once you let something like this out I, of the box, it's really hard to put it back in. Oh, yeah. Pandora has been released here and it, you can't put it back. The only thing you can do is just keep letting people know that even though it's being stated one way, uh, the rest of us don't believe in it either. And it, it this this shouldn't be a party thing because nobody does. Yeah. But they've made it that way. Yeah. Um, they took this and, and as I said earlier, they weaponized it uh, to make it a real issue when it's a nothing, yeah. truly a nothing. Yeah. Yet another way to divide us. <clears throat> sure. sure. So I want to move on to something else here. You, uh, one of your planks we talk about, or you talk about on one of your planks, corruption. Um, you spend a lot of energy mm-hmm. talking about ending corruption in politics. And I'd have to say that, you know, a lot of people enter politics talking about this goal of ending corruption as if it's something that's simple to do. But, you know, the sad truth is that corruption in politics has been with us for a while. But the the more recently it's been getting, how should I say, increasingly normalized in our culture because we're becoming more cynical. So it's becoming increasingly normalized in our culture over the last few decades, especially over the past four years. Um to the point where, you know, the cynical part of people say, well, why even bother cleaning up town? So with all that in mind, uh, 
I'd like to find out what your goal is here. Uh, I mean, it, your goal is admirable. I, I completely support anybody that says they're going to go in and, and clean up corruption. But let's talk about the details. Where do you see corruption in Missouri politics and what sort of strategies will you employ to clean it up? Well, there are a couple of things, actually two or three. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is going to be uh, the governor's no bid contracts. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I spent a couple of years at the Department of Education, and we had to have at least three bids right. uh, before we could ever write a contract. And that should be uh, throughout the entire process at the state level. Uh, somebody on a no-bid contract is getting money. Yeah. Uh, th that, to me, is just unacceptable uh, when we need this done. Oh, I have a company here that can do that. Okay, you get the bid. We're not even going to let it for bids. Yeah. That is unacceptable in my mind. Well, you hit the uh, nail on the head with that one. I was I was hoping you'd bring that up because that is uh, that is a real sore spot well, with me. Yeah. There there are a few others we talked about earlier. Lobbyists. Um, you talked about all the lobbyists for the CAFOs. They have way too much power, mm -hmm. even yet. Yeah. And their power should be cut. Uh, and it, power comes from money. Mm -hmm. And once again, somehow, some way, I know there's supposed to be limits. Uh, the Missouri Ethics Commission is watching. But somehow, in, other, in order to turn a lobbyist's direction, if you don't believe originally that way, something makes you turn. Mm -hmm. And normally... Money's at the root. Um, and I'm just going to say it that way at this point. Yeah. The last thing is, um, I think one of the things that bothers me, and it's not truly corruption, I just don't like it, is tacking amendments onto bills that have absolutely nothing to do with the bill so that your friends in your county end up with something. Yeah, yeah, pork, yeah. And, and it happens all the time. Let the bill go through pure. Mm -hmm. Don't be tacking addendums on that have no relationship to it. If it's important enough to you to make it a statewide issue, put it on a bill and let's go that way. But to tack on your own little pork barrel things at the end, that bothers me. It always has. Yeah. But isn't it? So isn't there that the are some of the things I'm looking at. Isn't that the concept behind those so-called omnibus bills? I, I, I'm, I'm not a legislature, so I don't know what, what that means. But It is. It is. Uh, omnibus, basically, you take a whole group of things and pile them in together mm -hmm. and try to shove them all through at the same time. I would say, though, the difference between an omnibus and what I was kind of talking about was in an omnibus, everybody has a say or can have a say in what's put into it. Mm -hmm. uh, many times with these tack on at the end of the bill, it's put on at the last minute and nobody even has a chance to refute or accept. Oh, wow. Wow. You mean you like know, the bill already goes gets, already goes through and approved and everything it, and then they tack stuff on the end? Well, it'll, it'll go on just before approval. Oh, okay. okay. In, many, in many cases. And a lot of times by then, you're running through 15 bills at the same time. You may just not be able to see or have the opportunity to see that this got tacked on at the last minute 
and many times those go through that way. But an omnibus is an overall. It, it's it's an umbrella type thing. Okay. okay. And I don't like them, but at least everybody has a chance for input or to add to or delete from before it goes through. I always look at those omnibus bills as sort of like a fire drill in a sense, because you know uh, one of <laughs> one of the problems with with Missouri and a lot of states have this too. It's it's much worse even like in New Hampshire, where I think they meet like once every two years is you you don't get enough time i think it, it uh, the session goes from january to um may i believe the governor can call can call in for extended sessions um i know right. california i believe they go year round and um they also get paid a lot more in california as well like six digit figures i right. think something like that so um in Missouri, it's um, it's kind of a rush, though, isn't it? Kind of a fire drill. Is that where these omnibuses come out? They say, "Oh, geez, you know, we've got all these bills. We we've been you know messing around for these last few months talking about all this stuff. We got to cobble them together and start getting something through the the session before it gets adjourned." Right, and even at that b before that last week, uh, before the end of session, uh, from what I've seen and heard, is just total chaos. Yeah trying to make sure that you can understand all of the bills that are being pushed through at the last minute and know as they're going through which way you're going to vote on those things because everybody's besides the omnibus, which probably is going through then, everybody else is kind of hung off until the last minute. Not, <clears throat> I want to push this through, kind of like a let's shove it under the carpet mm -hmm. at the last day. Yeah. And it, it becomes chaos over there. Oh, boy, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, speaking of bills, I want to I want to get off into another topic right here and want to get your input on it. And this is one thing I'm very impressed with Missouri in many different ways, despite the fact that I sometimes talk negative about it. But Missouri is one of 27 states that supports referendums and initiatives. Now, initiatives allows ordinary citizens to organize and collect signatures for the purpose of putting an issue on the ballot that ultimately, if it's passed, it changes the constitution or it implements a new statute. A referendum work in a similar manner, but they allow citizens the ability to essentially veto legislation through a popular vote. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so many of these 27 states offer one or the other, but Missouri dun, 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 offers both. And I think that's Correct. great, uh, but <laughs> there's always there's always a dark cloud inside the silver lining here. Uh, I'm yes, starting to see is. that uh, the highly conservative legislature these days they uh, they do a couple of things. One is they try to try to uh, unwind a lot of these uh, initiatives, and we can talk about that later. But uh, more disturbingly, they're trying to at this point um, to make it purposely make it more in, more difficult to get referendums and initiatives on the ballot. They're increasing the uh, signature threshold. They're increasing the territories within which you have to get the signatures. Um, mm -hmm. What's your opinion about this trend? And, and, and is this something that you're willing to work toward to retain our, our proud uh, tradition of referendums and it, initiatives? It should be kept exactly the way it always has been. Mm -hmm. The people of Missouri have had the right to put a referendum or an initiative uh, up for vote or to put it through or to repeal a vote if they wanted to. And that leaves it to the voice of the people exactly where it should be. Yeah. 
I might all, not always agree with the outcome, but at least the people are the ones that have had the voice in putting it in or maybe taking it out. And by making it harder uh, for a referendum to be put up or an, init or a, an initiative, initiative to be dealt with, it, it just makes it to where people are going to say, why am I going to put out this effort? And many times they won't, or it would become impossible for them to do that. And I, I just don't understand why not leave it in the hands of the people if they see a referendum necessary mm -hmm. so that we can put it on a ballot and vote on it as we did clean Missouri, for example. Yeah. Um, and let the people of Missouri be able to speak. Uh, we're just their representatives over there. Why are they trying to tell us as individual voters uh, how and why to conduct ourselves? Right. I, I would stand firmly against any change in the referendum or initiative uh, actions. Yeah, and just, just for reference, you, you referenced Clean Missouri, which was an initiative that passed in 2018, and it was to allow the uh, drawing of the district lines, the political district lines, in a manner that is considered fair. And they had some rules as to how that was all to be done. And so Correct. the Missouri legislature didn't care for that. Uh, well, not the entire legislature, but enough people within the legislature didn't care enough for that. So they put their own uh, measure on the ballot of the following election, which was 2020, um, in mm -hmm. purposely, and I'm accusing them of this, but purposely mm -hmm. a, a convoluted a lot of the terms in the ballot that I believe was designed to confuse people and essentially undo what Clean Missouri did. So we're going to go into this yes. uh, into this census right now where we're going to be uh, drawing political lines and uh, mm -hmm. the clean Missouri is not going to be effective. And, no, you know, absolutely and, not. And we, we've seen the same um, thing with right to work, too. This this constantly comes up and yep. uh, it's been coming up for you. Yep. Just a little bit of personal history here. I, I left Missouri back in 1985, went to live in California for almost 30 years. And I'm back now. Now, before I left, the right to work issue uh, was a big issue when I was leaving. I remember seeing these bumper stickers, right to work as a ripoff. I come back 30 years later, and it's still going on here. It, it what is? Yep. It, it's still a fight, and we've had referendums on this, and um, they still still seem to be fighting. So I can see why the Missouri legislator gets um, frustrated, perhaps. We can't have those pesky people yes. having their voice in what we do and, and making our laws. We need to do that. Yeah. Uh, right to work just keeps coming up. We voted it down. We voted it down and it keeps coming up again and again and again. Um, I, I'm sure it will continue until finally they weaken people down. But my goodness, I hope that never happens. Uh, I'm against it. I will stay against it. We, we can deal with that at another point, but I will stay right to work is a terrible initiative to begin with. Uh, it should be done away with. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's the problem with redistricting. Clean Missouri would have been what we needed 
to correctly redistrict Missouri. Um, you're right, they didn't like it. They just said, well, we're going to, and if you read that in the initiative that we voted on that last time, mm -hmm. it, it, that they put forward, it was almost unintelligible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was so poorly written. Mm -hmm. uh, Intentionally. I, I, I wouldn't I, even I have presented it. I would not have presented it in good faith, but anyway, uh, they got what they wanted. Yeah. And, uh, unfortunately now we're back into, I better not say too much or they'll cut me down to one little, uh, area and not give me a district to run in. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I said at the very top that, that, uh, right now your, your territory that you're running for the 126th is primarily two counties, Bates and Vernon. Um, but that could get cut up. That could get hacked away. I, I suspect it won't yeah. be because it's it's far enough away from metropolitan areas. But you know, you never know. You never know. And, and well, they did it. Uh, they did it six years six years ago. I think it was. They took the top tier off of Bates County. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so they took. Yeah. So they took Archie and a couple of the other smaller towns away and threw them up north or east or wherever they could go with them. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so they could do it again. Wow. Yeah, they could do it again. Well, speaking of gerrymandering, uh, this is something I found interesting in Alaska. I don't know if you kept up with what their elections were doing, some of the things that they were voting on their initiatives in the last election. But they uh, they they passed uh, two concepts, ranked choice voting and top five primaries. Uh, mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. do you? I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but uh, well, I know you're. I know you're aware of what those are, but I don't. I don't know if you're aware of that. Alaska had actually taken a very um, progressive step, in my opinion. Um, would you Would you support something like that in Missouri? Because it looks like ranked choice voting, speaking of initiatives, is probably going to be on the ballot um, in 2022. Uh, yes, it very well could be. I think ranked choice. Uh, might be a good solution to some problems. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping it will. Uh, I, I I really like to see it run another. I'd like to see it run through another time or two so that I can see how the results work out. Mm -hmm. But from what I've seen right now, Alaska has made it work particularly, and or I think they're going to. Yeah, state and of Maine has I'm, already done it. Too. I'm not against it. Yeah. 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 I am not against it at this point. I think it would be a good solution. And there's there's also this thing, and this could actually uh, cut into the power of gerrymandering by having what they call multi-winter districts. And just for everybody's yes. education, that's where you take uh, a group of districts, you know, two, three, maybe four districts, you combine them into one, and then you and then you say, okay, the top four, but whatever number of people, let's say you've combined four districts into one, you say the top four people in all these districts then get to represent that district as sort of overlaying each other. And um, that could really put a dent in the effect of gerrymandering, I believe. It, it could. Um, I worry... The, the only thing about that one that, that worries me uh, is putting four districts together and possibly having three of your four candidates from a different area, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And not having anyone from 
your district actually representing the people of your area. Yeah. I, I see that as a possibility. Um, I don't know that it would happen because surely someone from our district would run. Uh, but in the back of my mind, that's one of the things that, that worries me about doing it that way. Yeah, that's a that's a good common sense uh, um, response, I think, because I, I that's something that that you definitely need to think about. If you if you combine too many districts, then it's almost mm-hmm. it's almost um, worthless thing because then people in a certain area of a district will feel underrepresented. So uh, that's a good point. Um, the final point I want to talk to you about is uh, Second Amendment. Um, I know that you're a gun owner. I at least that's what I think you are. I, I heard you on a previous podcast about that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the Second Amendment in Missouri and um, what you'd like to say in terms of how you support it and what you support? I fully support the Second Amendment. Uh, it was put there uh, by our founding fathers. I am a gun owner. I, you know, but I do not believe that all of the hullabaloo is over trying to get rid of or replace the second amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, what our founding fathers could not have envisioned, though, with flintlock muskets was fully automatic Uzis and AKs. Yeah. Um, to me, a Missourian does not need a fully automatic weapon. And I would say, call it uh, another term, even firearms regulation or whatever you want to say, I don't care. But the whole issue and has never been over eliminating firearms from the individual. Mm-hmm. That's not what it started with. That's not what it's about. That's not where it's going to be. Um, I, I just think try and it'll be impossible with a black market the way it is to limit someone's ability to get a fully automatic weapon and go into a school or las vegas or even minnesota like we saw the other day and and shoot a bunch of innocent people or children yeah you know i i if i went in with one of mine it it's cock and fire cock and fire that takes time you you know and that's what the normal missourian needs if you're going deer hunting or whatever right. uh, we don't need fully automatic weapons but i think what they're thinking is from what i've heard is well if they get a handhold on the second amendment then they're going to keep chipping away at it yeah i, I don't believe that i yeah. don't believe that we're even looking at it and truly to me a lot of the hype, here we go, has come from the NRA. Yeah, um, lobbyists. You know, yeah. they got in trouble. Their funding went down after they got in trouble. They were trying to find new ways to support themselves. And so we're going to put out the hype that governments want all of your guns. They want to get rid of guns. And that is not true. Never uh, was true either. Yeah. No, it yeah. never was true. That was not the issue. The issue was to stop Columbine, Sandy Hook, schools like that yeah. from happening again. I don't know whether we can do that or not. Um, but if we do take like fully automatic weapons off the shelves, 
uh, even a semi-automatic's fine by me. I know guys that go hunting with an AR-15. They're semi-automatic. That's fine. One pull, one shot. Right. And so that's where, that's kind of where I am. I'm a full supporter of the Second Amendment uh, and our right to bear and keep arms. Um, I just, I just do not see that a Missourian as a farmer or as a hunter uh, is going to take an Uzi out deer hunting. Yeah. And so let's do what we can maybe to get those off the streets. And that's it. No farther. Yeah. Uh, let's try to keep the the mass shootings down. A- and I truly think the idea of uh, gun control uh, came from the idea of just simply trying to keep mass shootings or, or limit them to, to stop them. Yeah. And yeah, uh, it's just gotten out of hand truly. But yeah. again, I support the second amendment. Yeah. I've, um, I've always had a problem with, with the term gun control. Um, yeah. Because you know, when, when you, when you drive a car, you can, let's, let's use the analogy of a car, which may not be a good analogy, but use the analogy of a car. You're, you're in control of a machine that's capable of a whole lot of damage and so you have right. to be uh, licensed, you have to be trained, and you have mm-hmm. to prove that, that that you can handle the vehicle. And um, mm-hmm. if you get caught too many times in situations where you've proven you can't handle the vehicle, then it gets taken away from you. And but mm-hmm. they don't call it car control, though, do they? <laughs> they call it they call it automobile regulation. And that's why I like the right. idea of firearm regulation because it firearm it could be anything that shoots basically. Um, yes. And regulation is is not saying control like the government's not trying to control you, but we do have a right. We the people have a right to make sure that um, you know that knuckleheads don't get a hold of firearms and, and do all kinds of damage. So I would prefer right. firearm regulation myself, but that's just a kind of a personal yeah. thing. That's that's a better far better term because it fits more aptly uh, what the situation is. Uh, I I don't know anyone around here. Uh, that is going to take an AK-47 out and try to use it for any purpose. So why don't we at least regulate Mm -hmm. uh, those those types of weapons and leave the American, the Missouri people or American people in that case, because we're talking about the country to own and keep the firearms they would use in a normal manner. Yeah. Responsible manner. Not worry about those. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, I think we're coming up on the, on the hour, one hour mark. In fact, oops, I think we might be overshooting in here shortly, but this is every time I get involved in these kind of conversations, I could just talk for hours. Uh, One last question (laughs) for you though, is uh, I will call this the call to action section. Uh, can you tell us how people could get involved in uh, helping you run for office? Um, we have our website up. Uh, I, I might let Lucas kind of give a little bit more information on getting to those if he would in, in a minute. Uh, but I need all kinds of help for uh, we're going to be needing people on the ground. We're going to need uh, people making phone calls. Uh, donations always accepted gladly because we're running a grassroots budget. Uh, I don't have any big corporations behind me. So uh, to this point, anyway, it's just been 
25, 50 and hundred dollar donations. And uh, they're what keep have been keeping me going. So Lucas, if you could jump in, if he's still there. Yep. So mm -hmm. um, you can reach our campaign um, and view our campaign's website at jimhogan.info. Um, you can uh, connect with us on social media um, at Jim Hogan for Mo, wherever you want to social. So if you're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you go, uh, at Jim Hogan for Mo, Mo will take you uh, to us. That's four as in the number four or four as an yes. F-O-R? So J-I-M-H-O-G-A-N, the number four, M-O. For M-O. Okay, Jim Hogan dot, would it be Jim Hogan dot info or is it just as Jim Hogan dot for Oh, it's uh, J-I-M-H-O-G-A-N dot I-N-F-O. Got it. Okay. I'm easily confused in these things, so sorry about that. <laughs> thanks for jumping in here too, Lucas. I appreciate uh, you uh, putting yeah, this anytime. podcast together, helping us put the whole thing together. And um, this is good. So we've been talking with Jim Hogan, who's running as a Democrat for the 126th District of Missouri, situated on the western edge of the state, just below Kansas City. Thanks again, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, uh, letting me get the word out on uh, what I plan, what I'd like to see happen, how maybe we can help Missouri. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org slash contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you'd like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.